You're queen, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King with an occasional focus on his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes, and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about all things that serve the King. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com, and follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. And if you'd like to support what we do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash Obsessive viewer, where at the $1 per month uh, level, you get access to over 100 exclusive B-roll episodes recorded specifically for Patreon, and at the $2 uh, per month level, you get uh, that plus um, TV review and reaction episodes. I'm currently doing um, weekly reviews and reaction episodes of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And uh, at that level, and at the $5 level, you'll get all that plus movie commentary tracks and immediate reviews. Oh, uh, recently on this is such a mouthful. Um, <laughs> recently on there, I've done uh, commentary tracks for the movies Ex Machina, It Chapter Two, Throne of Blood, and The Shining. And finally, at the ten dollars per month level, you get access to all of that, plus early access to podcast episodes and previously unreleased content. Right now, you can go on there, and if you pledge ten dollars, you get access to uh, uh, the first three episodes of Anthology, my uh, solo podcast, uh, season three. And then also, uh, we have our uh, um, Mr. Mercedes review up there that was recorded years ago um, that we'll eventually redo. But anyway, that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And uh, yeah, so I'm one of your hosts, Matt Hurt. And with me today, as usual, is uh, to join me in talking about Misery the Novel and Misery the Movie is that old fooler, that dirty birdie, <laughs> cock a tiny... <laughs> Uh, Tiny, how's it going, Mr. Man? <laughs> Jesus. I was doing fine until nice. you read that. Nice. No, well done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I had, I've had that written in my notes for a while. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, how, how, how's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. Good. Yeah, good. Glad to be good. back. Yes. Yes. Um, you, had a, you had a leave of absence. I don't know if we want to talk about it here, but we talked about it on Patreon. Um, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So um, welcome back. I'm I'm glad to have you back. Yeah, glad to yeah. be here. Yeah. Um, so uh, okay. So yeah. So today on the podcast we will be discussing Misery, the 25th published book in Stephen King's bibliography, originally published on June 8th, 1987, uh, by Viking Press. Misery is one of King's most celebrated works. In addition to that, we will also be discussing Rob Reiner's uh, Oscar-winning 1990 adaptation of Misery, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. Uh, that's all to come. But first, Tiny, we have some news and check-ins. Yes, sir. Yes. So um, if you guys, uh, if you guys know um we recently released finally released our shawshank redemption uh episode that it's it's like the reveal of our dumb plan (laughs) um the dumb idea that i had i'm and i'm dragging tiny into it um to do a season introduce each season of 2021 um with a different review of the novella and 
adaptation, if it applies, uh, from the novellas in Stephen King's uh, Different Seasons collection. So I hope you guys enjoyed this Shawshank episode. I don't think it's dumb. I think it's clever. Thank you. Thank you, Tiny. Genuinely. Nice. Yeah. Um, I, I like that you put that caveat on there. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not being sarcastic. <laughs> um, so... Uh, but I did want to ask you something about that, that maybe this is something for off mic. Um, but actually it was something that was addressed on Kingcast um, regarding apt people. Mm. And we haven't recorded that episode of that series yet, but I want to ask you, should we, should we do the movie on that? And the, the reason I ask is because it was directed by Brian Singer, who, has like a, a a lot of um what's the word I'm looking for a, a lot of um allegations against him and um you know there's a lot of uh controversy controversy and like the, these are reputable claims like they these are reputable that's the right word right reputable reputable like these are these are like it's like there's legit claim like it's yeah pretty clear and everything yeah. um and so ordinarily, I think my kind of attitude is, okay, well, let's let the art kind of separate itself from the person creating the art and everything, because it's still a movie, like people still worked on that movie and everything. Mm-hmm. However, um, the allegations, I need, I should have done my due diligence and looked it up more, but I think that part of that is like filming on that set included like assault on a, on a child that he was orchestrating and everything. Yeah. And there is a scene in the movie that, um, is, is the kid in the shower at school. And it's, it's kind of the way that the, the guys on the King cast, uh, refer to it and, and talk about it is that it's like, clearly like the camera is lingering too much on him on the kid. Mm. And it's just, it's, it's kind of, I don't know. It, I, I'm just wondering if we have a moral obligation to just avoid reviewing the movie or if we should do it regardless. Huh. I'm not sure if I knew all that. Yeah. Um, which episode of the Gamecast is that? Um, that is a good question. Because I, 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 I think I heard that episode. Yeah. Because that sounds familiar. Yeah. It, it's. Uh, that's what's difficult is that it doesn't say... I don't know what episode it is, and I can't load my podcast okay. app. But um, yeah, it, it it's something that was brought up in an episode, so it's not like it's not like the this is our feelings about apt people the movie episode. Right. Um, but yeah, Man, I don't, I don't know. know. I you know I I you really sprung it on me there. I I did put me on blast, homie. I I sure did. Um, <laughs> as the kids say, I yes. you know I'd have to think about it. I guess. Okay. Um, I'm leaning towards. I think we should still review it. Mm-hmm. Um. Because, uh, I don't know, I, I I guess I'm leaning towards that because, sort of like you said at the beginning, there's a lot of people worked on the movie. Right. It wasn't just one person. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some good stuff. I'm a, I was a huge Brad Renfro fan. Um, yeah. He passed away um, several years ago, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But uh, he was, you know, he had his demons and he was uh, a severe addict. Mm-hmm. Um, and he overdosed. That's how he died. And, you know, p- part of the trauma that caused him to be an addict could have been abuse he suffered at the hands of right. Brian Singer. So, um, I, I don't know. That's, that's tricky. I, 
I guess I'll have to think about it and get back to you. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, we have time because <laughs> right. that episode isn't going to be posted until the first day of summer, which is June 21st, mm-hmm. which will also, as I said in, I think the previous episode is our eighth anniversary of podcasting. Damn. Um, in terms of releasing our first episode of the podcast out to the world, we recorded the first episode of the Obsessive Viewer on June 15th, 2013. Um yeah. A date which shall live in infamy? Yes. Because, Not infamy. That's a bad thing. Well, kind of an infamy, inf- infamy because yeah. in Indianapolis there was a big fire. Um, so There was? Yeah, like a... Like a uh, a a um, dump, not not dump, uh, like a like a landfill or something. Someone or... played their mixtape. Yeah, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> it was the hottest mixtape of 2013. Um, but the reason that I didn't bring that, like, I always remember that because sometimes I will wonder, like, oh wait, when did we record the first episode of Obsessive Viewer? And it's always like, oh wait, when was that big fire in 2013? In June Shit. 2013, on the west side of Indianapolis, um, and also. Because uh, the only the only picture I have from that day is the smoke f- that I could see from Speedway. Oh shit! Um, and like I've 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 kind of thought like it would be like if I could go back in time, it would be really cool if we had like taken a picture every time we recorded an episode. <laughs> um, but we didn't, so why would we do it now? Right. Um. Yeah. But. Anyway, so uh, how did I get on that? Oh, June 21st is when the uh, Apt People won. And if you guys have any thoughts on if you think we should review the movie Apt People or not review the movie Apt People, um, let us know. Um, We value your feedback. I did, when I posted the Shawshank Redemption episode, I previously had... Um, Amazon associate links to all the movies in the, like, like the paperback editions of all the novellas and, and the collection, like the standalone ones. Also, like, I basically had Amazon associate links for everything involving different seasons, but I made sure to remove the Amazon associate link for the physical copy of Apt People because that's something I could do at least. Um, because I don't know. I just, I feel kind of icky about it. I don't know. So, hmm. yeah, that's, yeah. that's fair. Or in the parlance of one Annie Wilkes, I feel a little ooky about it. Uh, or oogie. Yeah. So, Stephen King news. <laughs> yes, um, news. So, um, I have a few news items to bring up that I, I'll i just kind of run through them a little bit. Because um, these, are, these are from uh, a few weeks ago. Um, it was funny because the last time we recorded... Uh, Tower Junkies. I think when we recorded the stand, the last episode of the stand series, like the day after that, a bunch of news broke <laughs> um, regarding Stephen King and everything. And I was like, fuck. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think that was like the day before Paramount Plus had their big like shareholders thing or whatever. And they announced that, uh, I'll just read the headline, uh, Paramount Plus, a new origins story feature based on the Stephen King bestseller Pet Cemetery, uh, with Lorenzo Don Benaventura producing and a script by Jeff Bueller, uh, is coming to, you know, um, Paramount Plus. Um, uh, how do you feel about the idea of a prequel or origin story for Pet Cemetery in a movie form? Uh, <laughs> not really in favor of it, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like Pet Cemetery does not need any expansion, uh, mm-hmm. be it a prequel or a sequel. I mean, I agree. Uh, obviously, if it came f- directly from Stephen King himself and he wrote another novel, mm-hmm. I'd be into it, and I'd, or, you know, I'd at least read it. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like that story is so definitive and I, I, I don't see why it needs expansion, I guess, but I, it could be good. Who knows? I, yeah. And I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with you, except for the, it could be good. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, no, I, I, because Pet Cemetery to me, Pet Cemetery, the power of Pet Cemetery is the story of Lewis Creed and his family and the grief that they suffer and everything. That is the core of Pet Cemetery. It's so finite. It is. And yeah. like I couldn't care any less about getting background on the Wendigo or the Pet Cemetery itself or any like any I, I could not care less about showing the monster or mm-hmm. showing a backstory of the monster. Like that's the, it's dumb for, yeah. uh, in my opinion um, so yeah but we'll cover it if it ever comes out <laughs> I mean more king is always good true true but uh, yeah that's kind of strange which speaking of which um, yes more king is good and we've got word from Apple TV plus um, they reached out to us specifically they didn't <laughs> um, so uh, we got word from uh, Apple TV plus that um, Stephen King uh, that, that uh, Lisey's story is going to be coming this summer um, on Apple TV plus and uh, I'm excited about that Um so we've got that we've got that coming soon. Nice. I'm not yeah. familiar with that book at all. I'm a little bit familiar with it, but it is Stephen King has said that it's his favorite story that he's written, I think. Hmm. And he's writing all the episodes of the miniseries. Oh. Yeah, so that that'll be interesting. It'll be on Apple TV Plus this summer. So we'll have to read the book, review the book and then do episodes uh about the miniseries. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So that's on the dock. I don't know when, so that has, fills me with anxiety over <laughs> over like timing it and everything Mm -hmm. but um yeah so that's exciting and then also some other news that popped up um i don't uh, okay so you i don't think you've read the short story but from bloody disgusting david erickson the co-creator of amc's fear the walking dead is now turning the jaunt into a tv series as part of an overall deal with mrc television now the jaunt was a short story i think in skeleton crew or it might be in Nightmares and Dreamscapes. I, it might, I, I think it might be Nightmares and Dreamscapes. But anyway, it is an incredible short story. Um, I don't know how it can be made into a full-fledged TV series. <laughs> um, hmm. But are you familiar with the jaunt at all? Not even slightly. Okay. So I won't say much about it because I think the magic of it is in the discovery. But I will say that it is, it is one of my favorites specifically because it is Stephen King doing like more of a, like an actual science fiction thing, like, like full on science fiction. It's about, it's about the, um, it's, it's about the history of teleportation. Um, like the, the invention of teleportation essentially. And it's, it's a good one. It has one of those like iconic Stephen King endings. Um, I am intrigued. Yes. I highly, highly recommend uh, checking that out. Okay. Um, yeah. And then this will be the last one because we've got a lot to cover tonight. But um, the other the other piece of news that I'm going to wrap up with on this segment is Edgar Wright. Did you hear about this? No. Did you see this? Did you hear about this? I did not. Um, Edgar Wright is going to direct Stephen King's The Running Man at Paramount Pictures with hmm. Simon Kinberg's genre films producing. Um, Edgar Wright is amazing. I, I love Edgar Wright. Yes. And he has said that the, his adaptation of The Running Man will be an actual adaptation of the book and not like the Arnold, Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger movie. Um, Sweet. So that's exciting. I've not read The Running Man. Me either. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, hopefully it's good. 
Yeah. Um, I've seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. How did you feel about it? Um, it's okay. It's kind of strange. Is that a um, Paul Verhoeven? Is that a Paul Verhoeven movie? Or that, make that sounds up? like it could be, but you might be conflating that with... Uh, um, Total Recall. Total Recall. It might be. Um, the Running Man. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I've seen the movie. It's it's kind of fun, actually. Nice. I think it's a fun movie. Um, it is not a Paul Verhoeven movie. It is a Paul Michael Glazer movie. Well, shit. Yes. Hmm. Huh, anyways. Anyway. Yeah, it's kind of a fun movie, so yeah, I should read the story. The oh, novel. yeah. Uh, I agree. Me it's too. It's a full novel, right? Yeah, it's one of the Bachman books, I believe. Okay. Yep. Um, so that's cool. And so that's all for news. And then we do have some check-ins. Uh, Tiny, do you have any check-ins? I don't think I do, actually. Okay. Uh, did you... Have you started later? I haven't. I've purchased it. Okay. But I haven't started it yet. Nice. Are you reading or listening to anything right now? I'm not. I finished that book. I've been catching up on podcasts lately. Oh, so. nice. Yeah. yeah. Anthology Pod and Obsessive Year. Toads. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I released a very long uh, bonus episode for Anthology uh, today. And it's with my friends Dan and Anna from another uh, from Between Science and Superstition uh, Twilight Zone podcast. Mm. Um, we ended up talking for like three hours, but, nice. <laughs> uh, but I was just so I listened to it back today, and I was like so excited because it was it's a great episode. They're they're great to talk to. It was a lot of fun to just kind of dive into season two of the Twilight Zone on Paramount Plus, but also the sound quality is so fucking good with the new <laughs> with the new equipment. So nice. It was like I finally got it to where I want it to be in terms of all that. But sweet. Yeah. Anyway. Um. So yeah. So that's cool. I I wanted to do. I wanted to start doing something. Um. Whenever we do Stephen King check-ins, and I'm gonna call it the podcast. Co- the <laughs> I'm gonna call it the podcast cotet corner, uh, where I want to highlight other Stephen King related podcasts that I listen to in between recordings of our episodes. Mm. So the spotlight for this podcast cotet corner, which maybe I'll have a jingle next time, um, <laughs> is I just want to give a shout out to the Company of the Mad, the Stand podcast, uh, Jason Seacrest and. Mike Flanagan, Tanana Rivdu, uh, Anthony Bresnikin, uh, their podcast all about the stand. They went 200 pages at a time, dissected the stand. This podcast is incredible. Like I, I love it dearly. It's it's kind of a mini series podcast, so they've concluded and everything. But the thing that I love about it is that this is such an interesting document of our time, like in this pandemic, because they started doing it like I think probably before the pandemic really hit. And so they like it's to listen to it in sequence, it is like just listening to them relate what's what was happening in the real world with what's what was going on in the book and like it's just it's it's so so interesting and they are all a bunch of smart people um Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i i I love it so yeah sweet yeah shout out to the stand podcast at thestandpodcast.com i listened to the first episode it was nice yeah i haven't listened anymore unfortunately Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of burnt out on the stand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I totally, totally get that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tanana Rivdu, uh, uh, she and her husband, Stephen Barnes, made an appearance on my anthology podcast. Yes, they did. Um, but Stephen Barnes, he does, does a guest spot in like the third or fourth episode of The Company of the Mad, the stand podcast, and they go into like the whole um, um, like like uh, Mother Abigail and like that kind of magical black character kind of motif and everything. They talk about race with, within King's writing and everything. And, um, the way Stephen Barnes talks about the green mile is like, he's very impassionate about how the movie is, he hates the movie, but he loves the book. 
and it makes me so eager to to read the book because I've never read the book and I haven't seen the movie in over a decade easy. Same here. So I'm I'm really kind of itching to kind of dig into that and check it out. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yep. And then a couple other check-ins that I have. Um, so I bought these. Um, it is uh, Storm of the Century. I bought the DVD, which includes commentary from Stephen King and director Craig R. Baxley. And it also has a trailer for Needful Things. <laughs> um, but also I bought the book, which isn't a book. It's the original screenplay for the movie. So, uh-huh. yeah. So uh, if on Patreon I do a commentary track, I'll just read the screenplay. Um, <laughs> that's not really what I'll, what I'll do. Um, but, yeah, so I'm excited to check this out. Um, it does have um, Tim Daly. Uh, in it, which I am a huge fan of his from Wings. Yeah. So yeah, do you have any um, memories or any like anything with with Storm of the Century? I no, nothing at all. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Sorry, I have nothing. No, you're I, good. I, yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> even know there was a movie. And... Yep. I think it was like a TV movie, and then like I. I had previously a downloaded copy of it that the quality is like terrible. I don't know how much better the DVD will be, but I just wanted it to kind of have a physical copy for whenever we eventually get to it in our, our odyssey through Stephen King's work. Sure. Sure. Um, and then a couple other things I read, everything's eventual 14 dark tales. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a good collection and I just want to, point out that the one of the standout stories is LT's theory of pets and in the audiobook that I I kind of had a bootleg copy of the audiobook so I don't know if this is on the official audiobook but I'm pretty sure it is um LT's theory of pets is actually a live reading by Stephen King oh and Stephen King like he like to listen to him command that audience is <laughs> phenomenal like it is nice it is impressive. Like he comes out and he starts like he, he warms up the crowd by doing like these, these kind of like jokey kind of bits where he talks about, I can't remember exactly what it is, but something like, Oh, you know, you could, you could die of a heart attack on your way home or something. And all that, like very like, like dark humor and stuff. And then like LT's theory of pets is the structure of it is a man telling a story about his friends, the dissolution of the, the friend's marriage and how it's a really interesting story because it's about how at one point in their relationship, the man gifted the woman with, I think a cat or a dog, I don't know, a a cat or a dog. And then at another point, the wife gifted the husband with a cat or a dog and what's interesting is that the they swap like like <laughs> the 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 wife's pet bonds with the the husband and the husband's pet bonds with the was with the wife and everything funny yeah and like there's a lot of comedy injected into it and to hear him like perform it at, at a live reading and like hear like the crowd like like laugh at the perfect points it's like it is such a cool, cool experience. Um, huh. Yeah, I love it. So check that out, LT's Theory of Pets. Um, I actually think the full audio uh, is available on YouTube, um, okay. like for the live reading. So yeah, check that out. Um, and then also, <laughs> kind of unrelated thing, I'm insane. And so I, uh, I don't know how much I want to talk about because I spent like a couple of weekends um, creating... Uh, MP3s. 
I, I, breaking down the bootleg MP3s I have of his collections, which I have them on Audible also, but I also have bootleg ones so I can have more let's be real so i can listen to them while i go to sleep <laughs> right um so what i did was i took i started taking the um <laughs> so dumb i started taking the collections and making individual mp3 files for each individual story <laughs> that sounds like matt Hurt. <laughs> yep absolutely and i was going to ask you tiny if you brought if you happen to bring a usb drive or a thumb drive tonight i didn't okay well next time we can i can load up your stuff with that cuz like i have it's dumb. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> something that I did. Um, so yeah, so that's our Stephen King check-ins and news. Um, do you have anything else or anything else where we should bring up? No, I don't. All right, great. Well, let's go into our um, reviews tonight. Tonight, with uh, uh, We're going to re- be reviewing the novel, Misery, and the movie, Misery. So we're going to start out with talking about the novel, and I'm going to read the plot synopsis from StephenKing.com. And uh, here we go. Novelist Paul Sheldon has plans to make the difficult transition from writing historical romances featuring heroine Misery Chastain to publishing literary fiction. Annie Wilkes, Sheldon's number one fan, rescues the author from the scene of a car accident. The former nurse takes care of him in her remote house, but becomes irate when she discovers that the author author has killed Misery off in his latest book. Annie keeps Sheldon prisoner while forcing him to write a book that brings Misery back to life. So, Tiny, this is one of the big ones in King's oeuvre, and I don't have many notes about it, so this is going to be interesting. <laughs> but, yeah. but I want to ask you, this is one of those ones that you read as a kid, going to the library and everything, and you recently somewhat um, read it again. Mm-hmm. Um, what Can you kind of go through the history, your history with the novel more so than I just did on your behalf? <laughs> yeah. It, it, I did read it. Um, one of the first couple three four books i ever read of his uh in that it was that famed summer of 1999 going into seventh grade um got it from the speedway public library that was 1999 i believe so interesting so while you're discovering stephen king he's clinging to life following his uh his accident or was it 98 Hmm. i don't know so if it was 98 then you were discovering Stephen King one year before he was clinging to life. It was 99. It was 1999. Wow. It was, yeah. Wow. Where where were you on June 19th, 1999? <laughs> um, were you driving a van in Maine? Oh, my God. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean... No officer, right. um, but uh, yeah. So that that it was part of that summer, and um, when I was uh, introducing myself to Stephen King, so um, I I remember really liking it. It was one of my favorites for a while. I mean, I nice. held in it. Uh, you know, I, I loved it as a kid. Um, uh, but it's it's interesting reading it this year. Um, I think I actually like it even more. Nice. Like, I think it. I think it it resonated more with me as a 34 year old man, mm-hmm. 33, 34 year old man. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it, there's some things that I had, I don't know that I had forgotten them, but maybe they just had more of an impact on me this time. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure which it is, but, uh, yeah, my, my love for the novel only increased. Nice. Um, that's great. And so you've only read it the two times twice. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So if you don't mind me going into my history, please, so I first, I believe I first read Misery in it might have been like 2013 or 2014. Beat you, <laughs> right? Sorry, I don't know. 
<laughs> so uh, I think it was 2014 while I was working at, as a security guard. It was one of the copies that I just read while I was sitting there doing nothing, uh, staring at a door all, all day. <laughs> and a freestanding door that went into another world. Not really. It just went onto a parking deck. <laughs> um, but I read it then. And then I actually wrote a review of it on the now defunct Obsessive Book Nerd website. Um that doesn't exist anymore. But, um, and, and I was really taken with it and everything. And what I find really interesting is that in the intervening years, um, since I have become a fan of Audible and audiobooks, it's my preferred way to consume written media, essentially, is through audiobooks. And <laughs> a lot of times while like I'm working, because now I work at a job in the same building, oddly enough, that I can listen to audiobooks, podcast music or whatever while I work and everything at my desk. And so a lot of times I will get into a groove where I will listen to Stephen King audiobooks and like I'll re-listen to Stephen King audiobooks since it's something familiar, so I don't need to devote too much attention to it. But what I find really interesting is like when going through my my notes and my records and everything... <laughs> Uh, is that I seem to always return to misery. I think over the last like three years, I have list I have listened to misery like maybe two or three times. Wow. While working. And I find it really funny and weird in a sense because I'm like, I find myself gravitating toward that book while I'm at work. So I don't know if there's a subconscious thing where it's like, <laughs> I'm listening to this man being forced to work against his will <laughs> while sitting at a desk doing my, my nine to five job. Um, it's a real pain in the foot. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I kind of just hobbled together that whole thing <laughs> there. Um, <Nice. laughs> oh God. So, so yeah, I just, I, I love this book so much and it is one of those that kind of grows with you and you kind of grow um, with the story as well. And there's a lot of really interesting parallels that I can draw from it with like today and like the, um, that I can draw, can, I can draw to it in terms of fandom and entitlement and, you know, uh, crazy internet trolls and stuff like that is yeah. like Annie Wilkes is like the prototypical, um, angry fanboy, um, online incarnate. It's, it's really interesting. Um, so I really like it on that front. And then I also just really, really have an admiration for it in terms of it being a story about, uh, the, the creative mind's relationship with its muse and, and having this just symbiotic relationship where he, he is, he's working toward creating, <laughs> creating art, that for someone like the embodiment of the audience that he's writing toward or the people, the thing that he's writing for is literally chipping away at him, like <laughs> literally and figuratively chipping away at him. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's such an interesting, interesting story to dive into that. And I feel like the movie does, does it justice, but it doesn't do that part of it that much justice. Well, which we'll talk about, but um, so yeah, so the novel, um, so I have some trivia before we get into the actual novel discussion, okay. um, from stephenking.com, there's a blurb that, uh, from King that says that the inspiration for misery was a short story by Evelyn Wow called, um, the man who loved Dickens. It came to me as I dozed off while on a New York to London Concord flight. 
the short story was about a man in South America held prisoner by a chief who falls in love with the series of Charles Dickens and makes the man read them to him. I wondered what it would be like if Dickens himself was held captive. And, uh, yeah, and he, uh, King originally planned the book to be published under his pseudonym, Richard Bachman, but before the publication, the identity was discovered, uh, so it became a Stephen King book. Hmm. And then finally, the other piece of trivia is that Misery won the first Bram Stoker Award for novel in 1987. It was nominated for the 1988 World Fantasy Award for Best Novel. Sweet. Cool stuff all around, so let's talk about Misery, the novel. First, we'll do like a broad non-spoiler thing, and we can kind of be light on that and then dive into spoilers. Okay. Um, so, kind of overall thoughts on Misery, the novel. Oh, man. I really I really love... Um, I, th- I think one of the themes that jumped out at me through this read-through is the theme of isolation, which I've talked about numerous times across all our podcasting. Um, I think it's such a dynamic theme that makes anything more interesting. Um, like, like the movie, um, uh, the thing, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, Ed Carp or, uh, John Carpenter. John Carpenter. What the hell? Ed Carpenter. Carpenter Mario Andretti. (laughs) (laughs) The race car driver. Um, uh, John Carpenter's the thing specifically is like one of my favorite movies ever. And it's one of my favorite things about it is the isolation. Mm -hmm. And, and I love how, you know, I'd say, 80 plus percent of this book, maybe even 90% of this book mm-hmm. takes place in Annie Wilkes house. Yeah. And there's very, very little influence from the outside world. They're very isolated. Um, and then even within the house, um, for large swaths of the story, um, Paul is isolated further within the house Mm -hmm. in the room and then isolated further to the bed. Like, it's just crazy how, how the levels of isolation, um, it's, it's just interesting how that jumped out to me so much in this read through. That's really, yeah. Cause I mean, I never really thought of that as like, kind of like a Russian nesting doll kind of isolation thing. Right. Because I mean, the moments in the book where he is leaving the bed and he's like going into the different rooms of the house, those are like, the most intense moments because that's where like it's completely foreign to him and it is just really like intense in terms of um like being caught right <laughs> it's that's really interesting well and to continue to play off the analogy you just used it's mm-hmm. within those russian nesting dolls there there is a wolverine of a person and the yes. the dolls get shaken up every once in a while and the wolverine goes crazy and just it's just amazing how he maintained all the levels of those that theme mm-hmm. and then had these two incredibly deep characters within it and the way they clash it's just it's so amazing and 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 one of the things that didn't stick out or not that it didn't stick out to me but i i noticed it so much more in this read through is just how how dejected and ruined paul sheldon becomes yes like i i that didn't register with me i guess when i was mm-hmm. 12 <laughs> right um, which kind of makes sense <laughs> um but but it's 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 really disturbing how mm-hmm. like it's it's I don't understand how if it was me I would have totally just collapsed as a person and just mm-hmm. I probably would have killed myself like that's intentionally overdosed or something because yeah it's it's just what he endures mm-hmm. uh, there's a few lines that he that I won't I won't say right now that he uh, mm-hmm. that just are so 
disturbing and stark and yeah i, I really it's i didn't I, I had such a high opinion of the book and it's <laughs> like it's it's been elevated so much more with this read through absolutely and like the the turmoil the emotional and mental turmoil that Annie Wilkes inflicts upon Paul Sheldon throughout the book and the physical as well like that is it is so well realized like it is it is just really well written in terms of like the the strive that Paul Sheldon has to survive is like it's a deep-seated kind of thing and I just yeah I I adore it for that mm. um the when should we go into spoilers because we can kind of dive into i mean we've talked a little briefly about it but um let's let's back up a little bit how do you feel about the did you draw any correlations with the book with like modern fandom and like i don't know fandom fans of a certain property that might demand that you know an actress not be it, like say that she like is like being very angry at an actress like someone like Kelly Marie Tran for quote unquote ruining Star Wars or whatever um, or their property I should say um, I'm talking about Star Wars fandom right right <laughs> entitled fanboys and stuff did that did you make any connections with that in this reading or am I just looking for a reason to shit on Star Wars you're looking for a reason to shit on Star Wars oh really okay no no. I, <laughs> That that didn't jump out to me overtly. Okay, but there that that idea is definitely there, nice. and obviously I don't know that I don't know that Stephen King was going for that when he wrote this because mm-hmm. I don't know if he had toxic fans at the time. I, I mean, I I think he did. Um, I'm sure he did. I, it couldn't have been to the level of toxic fandom that we have now yeah. because of the internet and all that shit. But well, I think part of the backstory for this book as well as well as the short story in that blurb that he mentioned was that. He, if I'm, if I, if, I don't know, this could be, I don't know, this could be apocryphal, but he wrote The Eyes of the Dragon as a fairy tale bedtime story for his kids and stuff. And it was like a fantasy novel that wasn't horror necessarily. It wasn't overt horror like his fans were accustomed to. And this is still fairly early in his career in terms of, it's like the first decade of his career. Um, mm-hmm. And he had such a, I don't know if it was, I don't know if I'd call it a backlash or like a negative response to Eyes of the Dragon that he was like, he channeled that negative reaction into making Misery. And I think working through some of that, like entitled fans, because I mean, Paul Sheldon is a writer who his fans, who has made his living writing a specific type of book, but he has that creative impulse to branch out of that. And this is about like his like the embodiment of his fans, um, the most deranged of them, <laughs> forcing him back into what made him successful and what he didn't want to write anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, that's true. That's interesting. I didn't. I don't know that I knew all that. Mm. But w- knowing that, what's what's funny is the fact that the story that that Paul Sheldon writes in the book um, turns out. To be really good, yeah. And, uh, and misery's return, misery's return, yeah. and like, and it's it, further than that. Uh, obviously, um, Annie loved it, right? Mm. But Paul was there's this running idea throughout the book, or this thought that Paul has that he's just absolutely ecstatic to be done with with misery, and he's yeah. tired of writing it. He doesn't. He never really cared for it that much. He never thought it was good, but it was right. his most successful thing. Well, he even admits to himself. 
that it's one of the best things he's ever written. Yes, in that... Which is really funny because it's like, mm-hmm. so out of all this horrible situation and very toxic, the epitome of toxic fandom right. came something really incredible. So Absolutely. that's what's kind of ironic about the fact that Stephen King was definitely going for those themes that you just explained. Yes. But it's funny that he chose to have the the story that he created be one of the best things he ever created. It's almost like he's saying this this adversity, mm-hmm. or I guess the toxic fandom can be uh, interpreted as adversity, and some people really thrive under adversity and create incredible things. So I don't know if he's going for that, but... Well, and I think that, like, that's why I think this book is is brilliant, and that, that's why it's one of my absolute favorites, is specifically because it has so many layers to it on that front, but it's also... it it presents Paul Sheldon as someone who wants to, like he thinks that fast cars, the manuscript that he finishes uh, like at the beginning of the book is like his masterpiece. This is him becoming like a real writer or whatever. Like this is him, Mm -hmm. this is him breaking out of that kind of commercial um, pop writer and doing something that really has meaning to him and everything. And then what I, what I absolutely love about the way that he writes his pro- the way that King writes Sheldon's process of writing Misery Returns is that it is this very insulated kind of relationship that he has with his work. Um, Paul Sheldon becomes, like, against his better judgment or against, like, his willpower or whatever, he becomes, like, kind of entranced and, and into the writing process of Misery's Return. And like you said, it becomes, like, one of his favorite things that he's written or one of the best things that he's written and it's just really fascinating to me that on one level, it's Paul Sheldon escaping from using his creative mind and, and creativity and his his craft to escape, at least briefly per day, escape from the horror and turmoil that he is experiencing at the hands of Annie Wilkes, while also being this uh, this really twisted like this is what the fans want and this is this is what my number one fan wants and I'm going to deliver that and against my better judgment it's going to be something that I can actually put my name on and I can actually be proud of and everything and it's just so the layers to that the psychological turmoil and just fucked upness of that <laughs> in terms of like he's created this art out of duress or under duress and it is uh, it is something that he can actually be proud of. It's just a super fucked up uh, proposition for uh, and and really interesting interesting um, uh, connection to draw in in the book. Um, so yeah, I, I love it for that. Do you want to talk spoilers? Um, yeah, we can do that. Okay, yeah, because we'll go into more of the kind of uh, more more plot centric stuff in spoilers. So uh, just to um, Prep you guys, I am going to play some music to switch over to spoilers. So we're going to be spoiling the novel um, Misery uh, here soon. And so, yeah, check the show notes for timestamps to skip over the spoilers. But, um, yeah, we're going to go into spoilers for Misery. Alright, and spoilers on for Misery. And one thing that I forgot to mention in non-spoilers that would have been a fun uh, conversation to have is uh, how did um, did season two of Castle Rock influence your perception of Misery, the novel, when you reread it? 
Not nah, no. Okay. I'm, I was gonna say not really, but actually, it's just a, pl- a plain old no. <laughs> Interesting. I okay. Think, I think it's because I wasn't too crazy about that season of Castle Rock. So that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm feeling a little bit better about not bringing up a non spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do want to mention for for me, it, it there were a couple of bits here and there that kind of stood out to me, like um, in the early parts of the book when she is, you know nursing him back to health and everything. Um, she has just that maternal kind of attitude. And I think Paul Sheldon even in the book, like compares her to like a, like a maternal presence, maybe, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but I just thought that was interesting that Castle Rock kind of ran with that. And, um, also the laughing place. Um, she references the laughing place. She does. Yeah. Yep. Um, which I wasn't aware of being a thing. I, I didn't remember it being a thing in the book until, I read the book again. Me either. Yeah. 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 So, spoilers on for Misery, the book. Um, when I said that it's like his muse, the the relationship between Paul Sheldon and Annie Wilkes is a relationship of a creative mind with his muse. And that muse is cruel and horrifying um, in this book. And what I love about it is that, like I said in the non-spoiler, it's literally chipping away at him. And one of the most effective moments in this entire novel is when he, it's after, in the book, it's an amputation. She amputates his foot. I think like, I don't even think it's like, like below the knee or I I don't think it's like that. I think it's like halfway up the shin or something like that. Something mm-hmm. fucking crazy. Yeah. Um. So it's an actual amputation and the way, Oh God, the way that it's written is so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um. He, wakes up to a needle uh, being like a syringe being pumped full of drugs. And then she references like, Oh, I just need to prepare you for the surgery. And he's already woozy. He's like, did she say surgery? Like what's she talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, so how'd you feel about the, the amputation scene? Uh, you know, it's funny because I feel like, I feel like the movie has sort of overshadowed Mm-hmm. the book to an extent i mean i not not to the extent that like the shining has right but i think just because of kathy bates and her performance and that's her first big break you know um and then just the hobbling scene is so famous and that's what everybody remembers i didn't even really realize that in the book it's a amputation yeah or i didn't remember that part right i thought it because everybody just remembers the hobbling scene yeah and, and for a good reason right we'll we'll get to that later but um uh it, it's funny because that's just what i had in my head and that's what i was thinking because i hadn't read this book in 20 years right um but reading it again it is amazing how it's it's almost better than the hobbling scene because he's yeah. he uses so much detail mm-hmm. and there's just I mean the the blood and the fact that he's we're seeing it through the we're we're experiencing it through the filter of Paul Sheldon who is basically drugged up is yeah. like stoned out of his mind so during good. it um, which probably prevents him just uh, scientifically or medically or whatever mm-hmm. prevents him from going into shock and dying probably right. just the fact that he's so stoned not yeah. the fact that it's blocking the pain but because mm-hmm. um, to witness a part of you being taken off yeah I just the psychology of that I can't I can't imagine it yeah. oh me neither I, I like it's it. it is I think like you said, the hobbling does kind of take take over in the mind of pop culture and everything. And I think that's mostly right. just because 
I mean, the movie is more like, like more people watch the movie than have read the book. Right. Just by in terms of sheer numbers, the amount of time it takes to read the book versus the amount of time it has to watch the movie. So that becomes a pop culture thing. But again, just the I, I think that it is far, far more brutal in the book because he can heal from the hobbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he does. And that last scene in the movie, he's kind of walking fine. Right. Um. But again, just the 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 imagery and the the metaphor of him giving pieces of himself to his fan or to <laughs> to his art or having it having his having the recipient of his art chip away at his physical being multiple times too. Because one of the most amazing parts of the book that I always forget when I read it. <laughs> is like after the amputation scene there's like a little bit of a time jump and like the next section kind of similar to how um king wrote a pivotal scene in pet cemetery there's a jump to something that's already happened that we have to then play catch up on so when he like when we come back like the next the next section of the book or the next like part of the book says like oh it's been so and so days since the amputation and it's been a couple of days since she took his thumb and it's like whoa whoa, whoa wait wait what <laughs> like his right. thumb's gone yeah <laughs> and there's a that that's a whole thing and i think the book does an incredible job of just creating just an absolute monster in kathy bates yeah. or not kathy bates annie wilkes <laughs> right. um it's it's just it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, that I think my favorite line in this not maybe, maybe not my favorite, but the the line that'll probably never leave me mm-hmm. that will always stick with me is is in that part where he says, um, talking about his thumb. I think he says it's it, right after that. Maybe he says something along the lines of, uh, Annie, if you take anything else off of me i'm not gonna make it or something like that oh yeah or if you cut anything else off of me i'm not gonna survive or something Mm -hmm. like that and it's and it's funny because it's you can almost interpret it two ways because physically right like he could lose so much blood that he dies or it's like he'd get infected he could go into shock but what he's actually referring to is the mental side of it like he yeah he will not recover if you take another piece of his body from him Mm -hmm. and and that just it just fucking chilled me to the bone. Yeah. And I think a part of it was that it was an audio book and I heard mm-hmm. someone say it, you know, like I heard right. it was like I was hearing Paul say it himself. And that line's not in the movie. Uh, no. It's no. not in the movie. No, because she doesn't, yeah, no, because she doesn't, she doesn't take, take his thumb in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah. that, that part was insane. Um, mm. And, and, and another, another line, I, I, I think this is in the book. I, it's been like four or five months since I listened to it. Right. But I think Annie refers to the amputation and the thumb and everything as like, I think she does, doesn't she describe it as like something she has to do? Like, it's like, well, I, I have to, I have to do this because if I don't, then you're going to try to go out of the room again. And yeah. it's like, and, and, and he, obviously he's sitting there like, that's fucking insane. You don't right. have to cut my foot off. Yeah. Like that is truly an insane thing to say. The internal logic of her, her Ex- reasoning yes. is just fuck. Like, exactly. She is one of the best written villains of all of Stephen King's work. Yes. Um, and it, and she is horrifying. Right. Um, yeah, it's just amazing how how twisted that is. Yo, oh, totally. To, to, for her to feel that way and to say that, like, I have to do this because mm-hmm. if I don't, you're just going to do it again. It's it's like it's like 
it, it's very um dark logic that she's using yeah to kind of kind of piggyback off your term it's it's mm-hmm. her internal logic it's it's so disturbing that someone could actually have that thought totally. like well i have to cut your foot off because like i could never fucking do that to right person. adolf hitler could be sitting in front of me and i would never do that yeah i mean i'd shave his mustache but um that <laughs> <laughs> went in a weird place yeah. but but yes yeah, actually those- furniture could be <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> Ashley, actual Ashley. Ashley Furniture. <laughs> um, Miss Furniture. <laughs> God damn it. Um, but no, that I think that when she takes his thumb and we're like experiencing the aftermath of it, that's like the part when I was reading it where I was just like, I, I do not remember this being so disturbing mm-hmm. just the, the 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 mental degradation that his character goes through like he's, absolutely like i i would be i would have been insane and i would have probably oh, totally. killed myself if that was me that's yeah it's insane um it it is it is such an incredible incredible book it is um and the way that it the the way that she shifts blame when she kills the cops is right in incredible like it it is such a fascinating and this is one of the things that king does perfectly like consistently throughout his whole career is creating these villains like they're not cartoon villains like they're not like it does the tried and true and this is one of the reasons why stephen king is such a fascinating and uh, uh talented storyteller is it follows that logic of the villain is the hero of their story and she like rationalizes it in as as fucked up as her as her mind is and how how much issue there is with her um men- mental state and everything she also has that internal logic of like well i only killed him because you made noise and he heard you so you killed him i didn't kill him you killed him right and it's just it is just perfect writing um and she thinks that makes sense Absolutely. Right. And I think that there's a part where she runs another cop over with the lawnmower. Yeah, or the tractor. Yeah. The tractor. Yes. Oh, so cool. Yes. Um, so intense. So, mm. so, so messed up. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, how did you feel at the kind of the her comeuppance, the, the, the moment where he gets the upper hand and, uh, first of all, I just want to point out how brilliant I think it is that he burns the manuscript. Yes. Uh, after she made him burn his manuscript. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's perfectly poetic. How did you feel about the kind of finale of the book? It's, it is, it is very poetic. That's a great way to put it. And it's funny because he really didn't need to do that. (laughs) It was, it was, I mean, I guess you could make the argument that he used it to kind of distract her mm-hmm. so that he could gain gain a physical uh, advantage over her. Yeah. But I, it's it was really, more than anything, I think it was a fuck you to her. Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. Which it's... which is very satisfying, but it's like, mm-hmm. really, you're taking this really big risk right. <laughs> just to give her a bit giant middle finger. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, it, it was really, um, really satisfying and like, especially... <laughs> Later on, I think it's in the, yeah, it's in the book. Um, he's like, he's like taking the ashes and like shoving them down her, in her mouth and yeah. down her throat. And they, they, he does that in the movie too. He does in the movie too. Yeah. Yeah. I just, that's just yeah. like, again, it's very poetic. Like mm-hmm. he's literally like, 
okay, fine. This it's 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 sort of a, the metaphor of you know, fine. This is what you want. Here you go, and you force it down their throat. <laughs> yes. Like Jesus, just take it. Like so great. Um, it, it plays into that idea and that metaphor. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's it poetic. That's a great word for it. Yeah. Yeah. It uh, it's so it's so brilliant. And then. Mm-hmm. Something I really appreciate about about the book, and it's something that the movie does a little bit, but it's more, I don't know, it's not to my liking as much as it is in the book, naturally, but the the ending, the kind of denouement of the book is Paul Sheldon going back to his hotel room or back to back to his penthouse or whatever, his home. And he has just a just a vision of Annie in there trying to kill him. Right. And it is a very intense kind of thing to leave it on. And I think that that says so much about the trauma that he endured and how like it tells this kind of overall thing about how he can't he won't be able to at least not immediately escape his demons. And the demon is not only Annie Wilkes, but it's it's his reputation among his readers. It's his audience. It's his, his, you know, the fandom rising up and taking, uh, taking control of his, of his psyche in a way. I just think that that is another kind of layer to the poetic nature of the, of the book. Um, and a good way to end it on. Definitely. Um, and, and what's, what's something I didn't remember from when I read it the first time. Um, he has that, vision when he goes back to his apartment in the denouement mm-hmm. where he sees her and everything. And I think it's, it stems from the, the fact that he never actually like saw her cold body. Yeah. He like, did he, did he like pass out or something like that? I, I think th- so. Yeah. He like passes out basically. And you know, it turns out that she, she fell over and hit her head on the side table or the dresser or something. Yeah, and like that's what killed her. That's what actually killed her. Yeah, but he didn't get to witness mm-hmm. her death, and so because of that, there's a part of him that is so terrified of her right. and is so ruined by yeah. her that he can't he can't separate he can't accept that reality absolutely because he didn't get to actually physically experience it and. That's it. It just demonstrates how evil her character was, and how effectively she terrorized him. Yes, and absolutely. That that was an incredible. That was an incredible part to put at the end of the book because again, it just drives home how nuts she was. Absolutely, and how effective she was. Yeah, uh, yeah. And he's he's just he's never gonna be this. He's never gonna be the same. Right. Both physically and it, it's it's crazy because what's famous about the book and the movie is all this physical shit. Like he's held yeah. he's held held captive in a bed. She mm-hmm. cuts his foot off. She cuts his finger off. Almost kills him. But mm-hmm. it's it's really the psychological aspect of it that is actually more disturbing. Absolutely. 100%. Which is incredible to capture in a, in a book. Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 it's really good. Yeah. Incredible stuff. And so yeah. as we come to the end of this review of the book, Misery, um, how would you, uh, let's see, on our top 19, which you can find at towerjunkiespod.com slash top 19, I think. Um, let me confirm that really quick. Um, uh, we have our dedicated page to that. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, uh, towerjunkiespod.com slash top 19. Um, I have Misery listed at number five. Um, my top five are 112263, It, Wizard and Glass, Pet Cemetery, and then Misery with The Shining at number six. And Tiny, you have Misery at number two. 
Wow. Yeah. Uh, underneath the Dark Tower at book seven and above the stand at number three. So, Tiny, after revisiting Misery and uh, kind of talking it out and stuff, do you want to keep it at, at number two or do you want to shuffle it around at all? You know, it's funny because The Stand and The Shining I both reread in the last year or two also. That's true. Um and I think I want to leave Misery at number two. Nice. That's how nice. much I that's how much I liked it. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. And for me, I'm gonna keep it at number five. Um there are parts of it that I I like a little bit more than Pet Cemetery, which is my number four, but I think Honestly, I think four and five can be interchangeable for me. <laughs> uh, Pet Cemetery and Misery are both just incredible, incredible novels by King. And the I, I do think Pet Cemetery takes the cake for on an emotional level. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'll keep Misery at number five. Nice. So. I I haven't looked at this list in a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I don't have Doctor Sleep on here. Oh, interesting. Because I think the first time I ever read Doctor Sleep. I had already created this list. Oh yeah. But uh yeah, I would I mean, I think Doctor Sleep's a top five. Oh wow, nice. Yeah. I'd probably put it at like five. Sweet. And then completely bump probably Mr. Mercedes. Okay. Or maybe Gerald's game. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But yeah, I need I need to update this list, I okay. think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. Anyways. Yeah. Oh, I was looking at my list. I was like, yeah, Miss, uh, uh, Doctor Sleep's on there. Um, <laughs> but it's not. Um, okay, interesting. All right. Well, that's our review of the novel, uh, Misery. And then are you still good to record a review of the movie? Absolutely. All right. Well, we are going to go into our review of Misery, the film by Rob Reiner. Okay, so Misery, uh, directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, I think I already said that. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Reiner previously directed, uh, previous to the, or I don't know, he also directed, his credits include, there we go, um, Stand By Me in 1986. And he also did When Harry Met Sally, The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men, This Is Spinal Tap. Um, you know, he has he has some good pre- pedigree there. Right, <laughs> right. And also, this movie was written by William Goldman, who also wrote the adaptation for Hearts in Atlantis in 2001 and for Dreamcatcher in 2003. Um, He was also a legendary screenwriter and novelist uh, whose work also included Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, All the President's Men, and The Princess Bride. Hmm. And so this movie was released in 1990 and garnered a Best Actress in a Leading Role Oscar for Kathy Bates. So, Tiny, uh, in non-spoiler terms, how did you feel about the movie adaptation for Misery? Uh, I really love this movie. It's, um, it, I, th- I think it's sort of, again, not overshadowed, but I think the focus is just Kathy Bates. Because mm-hmm. um, it was her first big role, and there's the, yeah. the famous hobbling scene and all that shit. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it, I, I feel like that kind of dominates it, but it's, it's, it's a really good movie, um, in addition to all those things, mm-hmm. um, I think, I think some themes of the book it doesn't quite pick up, yeah. And, and and there's there's some pretty big differences between the book, but um, and it's also kind of like a late '80s, early '90s kind of campiness to it, just a little bit. Yeah, I yeah. Know, just kind of like they weren't throwing a ton of money at movies, maybe, and so they didn't mm-hmm. have as big a budget. I I don't know what it is. I, I don't know enough about the time or anything, but yeah. uh, but I, I feel like it, it feels like it's a movie that was made in 1990. 
I I definitely agree with you there. It yeah. does have this. It's kind of funny because while the book is pretty timeless in terms of you know, the subject matter and everything. The movie does feel of its era and not really in a negative way for me. It feels like it's, um, it feels like it's a product of the nineties as a time capsule of that, that era of filmmaking. And I think Rob Reiner's directing style kind of leans into that a little bit. And one of the things that I really find just wonderful about this, and I think that this was done at some point, and I don't know why I keep making this connection with things that I watch, but I feel like this could really be, an effective like it's it's a two-hander but i think that it could make for an incredible stage production um totally in theater and i just yeah that would i think it it, cool. it was i think so too like off or on broadway even i i don't know probably because i feel like the king cast episode where they talked about this with uh, elijah wood i think they brought up that it was on i think it was on broadway maybe i that may not be right but I want to say Bruce Willis. That sounds that and, sounds right. Um, I cannot remember her name, uh, which is terrible. I want to say uh, Sheldon Cooper's mom from The Big Bang Theory. Oh, oh, uh, Laurie Metcalf. Laurie Metcalf, thank you. And it was Bruce Willis, yeah. And it was on Broadway. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that'd be an awesome pairing. I would love to see the both of them do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Not to take anything away from Kathy Bates, but mm -hmm. uh, Laurie Metcalf would be awesome because she's a yeah. very intense fiery-eyed lady sometimes mm -hmm. um, just thinking of her some of her more famous roles she's yeah that it'd be great to see her in that role absolutely yeah. and how do you think would you and this would never happen or anything maybe if they do did another stage thing if theater ever returns <laughs> but uh what, what would you think about seeing lizzie kaplan oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's funny because again in that King Cast episode they talked about mm -hmm. how she's described as like kind of a rotund woman, right? And she's like very strong, physically strong, yeah. Um, and you know, I mean, she has to like move Paul Sheldon around, and mm -hmm. he's a you know not not a small man or anything, right? But anyways, um, and, and you know, Lori Metcalf isn't isn't a rotund woman, neither is right. Lizzie Kaplan by any stretch. So, I mean, physically they don't fit that mold, but that's fine. Like, I don't think that's yeah. really that important. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I liked Lizzie Kaplan a lot. She, I think she did a great job with what she had. Yeah, me too. Um, but I, I don't know. So I think some of her physical mannerisms were a little strange I, in, in the, in the show. But um, just that walk she did, I don't know. I just <laughs> sure. didn't really understand the point of it. And it kind of, it was so goofy at first, it kind of took me out of her her first handful of scenes. Because I was like, why is she walking like that? <laughs> um, and that's a stupid yeah. nitpick. I totally understand that that's what it is. But I mean, I, I guess I can understand that. I, I, it's yeah. such a physical role. And it's, right. it's such, because she's so intense and she's so on the verge of violence all the time, mm -hmm. um, which obviously manifests itself eventually. But, uh, but yeah. I would be, I'd be completely open to Lizzie Kaplan. Nice. Playing the role again. Yeah. Uh, maybe someday that would happen. It would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but the actual movie with Kathy Bates and James Caan. So James Caan is an actor who I've, I haven't seen much of him in, in things. Um, obviously the Godfather. Mm-hmm. But I always kind of equate him as being kind of a tough guy kind of kind of kind of persona. Right. And um like to the point where it's not he's not he doesn't seem very likable or anything. Yeah. <laughs> and that I, I was really struck by um how 
how kind of empathetic he was in this in this in his portrayal in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he does a really great job of just showing the pain that he's suffering and being an empathetic person. And that was to his credit. I think he did a great job. Yeah, he did a pretty good job. But um, again, the the King cast, they talked about it a little bit. Um, I loved that episode. So that's why Mm -hmm. I keep referencing it. But um, he was like, like if I had a top 10 list of actors in 1990 Mm -hmm. to play Paul Sheldon, he'd be like number 38. Right. Like no offense. It's just, it's just not like you said, he has that kind of tough guy persona. Yeah. Um, And it's just not who I would envision. He did a good job, Mm -hmm. but there, I think, um, Richard Dreyfus was like on board to I think play. He was like and, in the running, yeah. Yeah, and like something happened where he backed out or something. I don't yeah. know what the heck happened, but I would have. Richard Dreyfus would have been great. That, oh my God, that him, would have been so good. Him and Kathy Bates back and forth. Yes, would have been I think pretty incredible. But um, yeah, I just I, oh, I don't man. picture James Caan as like a a writer. You no, know, me neither. Um, again, not to take anything away from him. He did he right. did, he, did, he did a pretty good job. But um, yeah. there's there's a whole cast of other actors in 1990 that I would have that I would have rather seen in the role. I guess. Yeah, I I agree. Yeah. Um. So in terms of the isolation. I think the movie does a fantastic job of just demonstrating that isolation and everything. Definitely. Um it's it's really it's really spectacular and the physicality of James Conn's performance in the way that he has to move and everything and there's some there's some slight like there's one moment where he is he's in a different part of the house and she's coming back and it's kind of a cheesy, like, Oh, I'm, I dropped a ream of paper, so I need to pick it up. And that gives him a little more time to get back into the room and everything. Um, they have that kind of nineties thriller kind of flashes of it and everything. But for the most part, the actual drama and the thriller aspect of it and the complete unhinged quality of Kathy Bates performance as Annie Wilkes is just fantastic. Mm hmm. Yeah, she. Yeah, I mean, she was next level. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I I think, uh, like, my favorite parts are when she get she gets. It's actually not the physical parts. It's the mm-hmm. um, it's her lines and the way she delivers her lines. Like it's 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 the parts where she goes too far with her praise of him. Where she's like, yeah. I love you, Paul. Yeah. And then, I mean, the hobbling scene where she she just whacked his leg off. Yes. And he's literally screaming in pain, in pain. And she's just like, God, I love you. Yeah. Almost like a... Like, I physically shudder. Yeah. Like, oh, That's how yeah. good she is. In the way that she says it, um, is just, it it's feels like this almost post-coital kind of almost exhausted from... <laughs> I don't want to get too too gross, but like orgasmic, uh, orgasmic, yeah. Right. Like she's like, God, I love you. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, just really great. And it's funny because I don't think, I don't know that she's a person who's capable of actual love. Oh yeah, like the way that most of us would define love. She's right. Just, and it's I, I I don't. It's not even that she's like selfish. It's just that she she's a sociopath. She's a sociopath. She doesn't and, have the ability. She literally just yeah yeah. Um. And I do so. So I'm I'm gonna play a clip here in a second. So you might want to put the headphones on. Oh yeah, yeah. But um, I do want to say that even in those moments where she is kind of emotional, she's emotionally unstable throughout it. But she's also like she has these like a little bit of pathos to her, and she has a moment where like when it's uh, when it's raining, and this is evident in the book too. But like when it's raining, and she's like the rain, like like she's just very. Um, 
she's 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 very um down like she has her highs and lows and stuff and i love the kind of the way that the highs um uh like contrast the lows and everything of her performance there and like i i just like i just have a question Wilkes? Wilkes? God damn it. Wilkes? You just did that. I did. I have been so excited to do that again. <laughs> I don't know why I'm surprised. Oh my god. Um, yeah, so anyway, that. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> um, she is very, um, I mean, it's funny cause she's a soci- sociopath, but she's mm-hmm. also like a textbook manic depressive. Yes. Cause again, yeah. the highs and lows and she'll just jump from one to the other so quickly. Um, that's, I, I feel like I, I had, I can't say that I've known anyone well who's an actual manic depressive, but right. I think I've known s- someone who's at least borderline and mm-hmm. is maybe, you know, a, a mild manic depressive and yeah. they captured it really well in the movie. And and yeah. I don't I don't it's definitely present in the book, but I feel like it's 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 more it's actually I feel like it's actually captured better in the movie through Kathy Bates' performance. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one small area where the um the movie's actually better than the book. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small thing, but um yeah, and it, I mean it is it is absolutely it's an interesting thing because the movie is the Annie Wilkes show for sure. Yeah. And the book is more Paul Sheldon's show. Right. And so it's an interesting kind of kind of thing. It's something that is also kind of prevalent in The Shining. And it's it's interesting that these two adaptations are Somewhat similar in the sense that, like The Shining, which I just did a commentary track on Patreon for, if you pledge at $5 or more, you get access to the commentary tracks. Um, but And I also have It Chapter 2 on there. So anyway, um, The Shining takes from the book a story about a family um, being kind of just broken broken down by the supernatural and everything, and Jack succumbing to that. And everything, but the movie is the Jack Torrance show. And here in Misery, it's kind of a similar thing. It's the Kathy Bates, Annie Wilkes show. And it's kind of all from her pers- perspective. Um, and to, well, not perspective, but it's her kind of craziness. And I don't know if that's a, that's a, if that's just a thing for, maybe the, the maybe it's just a, a byproduct of the film medium being, um, more attuned to showcasing like the more extreme uh kind of parts of a story rather than kind of the introspective and everything because you can't like do inner monologue without being hokey right um but it is i mean it is a it is a uh, an incredible performance by kathy bates yeah she does she does derive more she drives more of the action, I mm-hmm. guess, if that makes sense in the movie. Yeah, which which I agree. That's that was a good choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then should we go into spoilers for the movie? Yeah, sure. Okay. And I should have done this before, but instead of playing a music and music for uh, the for the spoilers and everything, I'm going to play a clip from the trailer for Misery. So we're going to go into spoilers for Misery. Here's a clip from the trailer. Um, if you guys need to jump off of the uh, episode, so here we go. 
presumption must now be that Paul Sheldon is dead. You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Misery spirit is still alive. I don't want her spirit! I want her! And you murdered her! You don't think he's dead, do you? And don't even think about anybody coming for you, because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. That trailer, like even in the marketing of that, that like kind of the the song the music is like very like nineties thriller oh, totally. music. Um, yeah. I, I dig it for that. Um so let's talk about the hobbling scene mm-hmm. and even like the makeup effects of James Conn's legs. Mm-hmm. Like there's a moment where Annie is is I think carrying him into the bed or putting him like he's she's putting him back in the bed or whatever, and like just the blueness of it. Yeah. It just looks just grotesque. It looks like the legs look swollen and like the, like intentionally like pale and blue. And it's, it's just so, ugh. it, it, it freaks me out just to see it. Yeah. There's a, I mean, I, I mentioned the campiness a little bit and, mm-hmm. and it, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's just I, kind of a low budgetness, I guess. Yeah. Um, but in that respect, it, it didn't feel low budget. Mm-hmm. It it worked really well. Um, and in the um, in the hobbling scene, I feel like you know she puts that giant block of wood in there, and then she takes a swing and essentially knocks his foot off yes. at the bone. What's the what's way so it moves. yeah, and the sound. Yes, I think one of the coolest things about it is it's so it's so quick we see it and then like half a second later they cut mm-hmm. i think it's like a close up of her face yeah but they show you just enough to where it's not like it's not grotesque or it's not um gratuitous right it's, it's not like a ridiculously gory it doesn't linger Tar- on it it's not a quentin tarantino moment you know it's, yeah it's very uh subtle but it's so effective and they don't they don't yeah. hide anything it's mm-hmm. it was it was shot really well um yeah I agree, and I think that that also is is incredibly uh, uh, smart of them to do because it it does have that kind of violence gore factor to it for a brief moment, but it feels like the movie is holding back that gore for the end because because <laughs> yeah. the bloodiness of their brawl is just amazing and like when annie comes back and and she's her face is just covered with blood like that's like that and the sheriff being shot are like the two like most violent parts of the movie and Mm -hmm. they both come very late in the movie um and it's just it is it is to really great effect to have that just pop up and just be like oh shit oh okay she's she's they're not gonna be friends after this (laughs) um yeah right and yeah, that that taking the manuscript and shoving it in her in her mouth as and oh uh, God, it's so, uh, so crazy and uh, so messed up. And it yeah. just like in that moment, I just have to ask. <laughs> Wilkes. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to okay. do that anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Um, no, but I think I think one area where the movie did not pick up the slack of the book is mm-hmm. um the, the the absolute wrecking of Paul Sheldon psychologically. I I 100% agree and 
Yeah, and I I kind of feel like even in the ending, like that ending where we see his vision of Annie with the knife, right? And it's that feels more that doesn't feel like an extension of his psychological trauma. That just feels like oh, this movie he needs a shock thing, right? Um, at the end, and it doesn't it doesn't pay off. It was that that was not earned at all. No, and I I didn't appreciate that very. It wasn't terrible. It was, I, I guess, just because I know what happens in the book and I know right. how ruined he is in the book Mm -hmm. it it made that scene kind of cheap yeah um but it's also i think really tough to visually demonstrate his terror like i I think it's how terrorized he was i think that's really hard to do i think there's a way to do it i'm not the guy to i'm not the guy to film it but Mm -hmm. um it, it, it's really hard, so I'll, I'll give them a bit of a pass because it's difficult to, like you were saying, we don't have his inner monologue and right. um, all his inner inner workings and his thoughts and all that. We don't have all that in a movie, and I'm glad they didn't go for like a voiceover. Yeah, that would have been terrible. Oh yeah, um, but it's it's still a major theme or idea from the book that's not present in the movie mm-hmm. and it, it's one of the most effective parts of the book and yeah disturbing parts of the book that's really going to stick with me and it's 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 just just his overall mental state yeah okay. just, just how, te- how terrorized and ruined he was yeah um oh yeah and and that's it, it's unfortunate but um I I don't I don't fault the movie for it too much because right. again I think it's very difficult to convey that visually yeah, I I agree. And and that's something that I think would be more tailored to obviously the book and a stage production I think could could do that well. But in a film, I don't think you you're contending with so much in terms of visual stimuli and and actually like telling the story visually that it's hard to really encapsulate the the mental mental turmoil unless that is the absolute focus of the movie and as we've said the focus of the movie is more kathy bates and uh, her portrayal of annie wilkes which is fine and is what makes it one of the standout stephen king adaptations but i agree it does it does miss something in terms of the uh mental state of paul sheldon and also the creative state of paul sheldon um i kind of feel like the movie doesn't really do justice to his the inner workings of his uh, creative process. Um, it's more because, like, even one of the things that kind of I don't know nitpicks. Uh, like, I nitpick this, and it bugs me just a little bit is the fact that he doesn't even have like a title for his new manuscript in in the movie. When in the book, it's it's called Fast Cars, and like it's something he's incredibly proud of and everything. And I kind of feel like the movie doesn't. It only pays kind of lip service to the idea of Paul branching out outside of the misery books and trying to do something more. I mean, we get like the flashback with his literary agent or whoever that's talking about that, but it's also, I, I kind of feel like it should have been maybe a little more prominent, but again, it's the kind of, it's the Annie Wilk show. So yeah, it's kind of hard to, to kind of um, have that, uh, have those concurrent, kind of things going. But I do wish that there was a little bit more in terms of the creative process and everything. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, again, the violence, um, <laughs> uh, I forgot. I, every time I see this movie, I forget that the sheriff gets shot. Yeah. Um, in the book, it's, uh, there's a couple of different cops that get killed. Um, but I just forget how just shocking and brutal it is and everything mm-hmm. um, in the movie. And it's it's good. Um, I don't think they really even show 
they don't really show the gun, I don't think. She references the gun, or I think she references the handgun, but that just makes it more shocking and, and uh, crazy. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think um, she shot the sheriff, but she didn't shoot the deputy. <laughs> Nice. I don't know. I couldn't. I didn't have time to record a whole thing and put it onto my roadcaster. Right. um, (laughs) No, but I. And they also took. I think in the in the book, there's a lot more investigation going around, uh, with ancillary characters in the background Uh, trying to find him. Not really. I think it's more expanded in the movie. If if anything, or there's Um, more characters. There are more characters that come to the house in the right. book. Right. Um, whereas yeah. in the movie, everything's kind of funneled into the one sheriff character. Yeah. Right. And his his wife slash deputy uh, or or whoever, um, they're kind of back and forth. It's like this weird like kind of comic relief and, and levity to the story that it, it works a little bit, but it's also a little incongruous with the rest of the tone of the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a little goofy, but... Yeah. Um, also we don't really get like, I kind of wish we would like, if you're going to spend enough time with that couple in that subplot and everything, like maybe have some payoff to, you know, her husband getting murdered. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, It's not a perfect movie by any stretch. No, but it is, it is very high up there in terms of, uh, Stephen King adaptations. Um, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which we will be doing a top 19 Stephen King adaptations episode soon. Yes. Um, so I won't ask you the question that, that the world is really wanting to know, um, (laughs) as far as where you would rank this, but, um, I will say that it is one of my favorite adaptations of Stephen King's work. Definitely. Um, and I'm really interested and excited to uh, to to rewatch Stand by Me and kind of have those like that one two punch of two Rob Reiner Stephen King adaptations to kind of compare. Because spoiler for um, that's our fall um, episode, uh, <laughs> Stand by Me is just incredible. <laughs> um, it is like the quintessential coming of age story. Um, so I'm. Really excited to uh, to watch that again and talk about it. Me too. And then hold on to the recording for several months until fucking like September <laughs> when I release it. <laughs> right. Although if you pledge ten dollars on Patreon, you'll get access to it early. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Um, anyway, again, that's Patreon.com/slash Obsessive Viewer. Um, so uh, what else can we talk about the movie in spoilers? Um. <sighs> The, oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the dinner scene I thought was really good. The way that he yeah. is, um, he drugs, he tries to drug her and then she knocks over the glass and I, I don't know, like it, it kind of seems intentional. Like she does that because she kind of knows, but also at the same time, it kind of seems like she's just like, that's just an accident and that's just the universe fucking with Paul Sheldon. Right. Um, where did you land on that? Did you have like an opinion on whether that was an intentional thing for her to do or is she not conscious enough of his, um, if, is she delusional enough to think that he wouldn't try that? So that was just a complete, complete accident. I don't know. I guess I never thought about it that much. <laughs> um, I, I do think it was a genuine accident though. Mm-hmm. If, if I had to, if I had to pick one, um, yeah. but I do love, um, 
James Conn's acting, like just how yeah. he just kind of stares at mm. the glass for like a long time after yeah. she knocks it over. Just completely dejected. Yeah. Yeah. Because he worked so fucking hard right. to get there. Yeah, yep. I, did, I did like that bit of acting from him. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Um. So we talked about the end scene in the restaurant and everything, and I, I kind of liked this kind of little part where uh the agent is asking him like oh you know well since you brought up uh annie wilkes um maybe write a non-fiction thing you know make some money and like he actually says like uh he says like uh i'm not gonna re i'm not gonna dig up the worst part of the worst thing i've ever experienced so that you know i can get money for it and everything and like i like that as in terms of integrity and everything and, and integrity of his art and everything um yeah so i don't know yeah i agree um yeah i kind of wish that there was more to that in terms of his relationship with the with the agent and his relationship with his with his craft but right right uh, i'll take what i can get with the movie right definitely yeah um so we can kind of wind down um is the uh oh wait i was just gonna ask uh, how it compares with you with stand by me but you haven't seen stand by me never seen it God, that is nuts. I know. Um, wow. Um, so I can't wait to I can't wait to talk to you about that. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I just uh, let's go ahead and do it. Where does this rank with you in in your mind with with Stephen King adaptations? Oh man, it's it's a top tenner. Nice. Uh, maybe even a top five, possibly. Nice. It's, I I feel like we kind of criticized a, a fair amount of it. We but did, yeah. I think I think that's really just in juxtaposition to the book because the right. book is like damn near perfect. Oh yeah, the book is just that fucking good, mm-hmm. and so it's like there's no possible way the movie could have even come close right to the book. It's just impossible. So I think I think it was more of a. Um, a criticism just in in comparison to that it, it is a yeah. really good movie um and i i mean i'd recommend it to anybody it's an awesome mm-hmm. movie um i I'd, i'd i can't tell you an exact number i'd put it at but it's it's a top 10 maybe even a top five nice. uh, adaptation it's really good well we'll find out soon what number that is because upcoming on the podcast we will be doing a top 19 uh, stephen king adaptations episode and for me, I would say it's pretty high up as well. I don't know if it'll crack the top five, but it is absolutely in the top ten. Um, it is it is a fantastic, fantastic um, uh, adaptation. And, I mean, I'll have to reevaluate it and everything, but um, maybe it will. Uh, uh, I can't make a pun. I can't. I, damn it. <laughs> um, uh, if, if, if there's a possibility that... Um, that I could put it up in the top five, then I hope that I James Con do it. Um, God. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, any any parting thoughts with this? I think we're closing out the episode, really. Yeah. Are we? Yeah. Um, so, any parting thoughts on Misery, the novel, or the adaptation? Uh, no, no. I think we pretty much covered it all pretty good. Nice. And do you think that... Do you think that there could be or should be a new adaptation in any form? I really, I really don't. I, I don't. Yeah. It's just this holds up great. Mm-hmm. It, it has, that, it has that layer of '90s on it, but um, it doesn't take away from the movie, though. I agree. I agree. I, like part of me wants to think that it could be interesting to see like a limited series, um, maybe like just like a 
five episode limited series or something. Yeah. Um, but again, it also part of me like that. That's my go to with really most of Stephen King's stuff. But really, I kind of feel like this. This is one of his stories that kind of fits really well into movie form. Um, movie length and everything like it is that it has that propulsion of story that can fit really well into a 90 to 120 minute movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Rob Reiner did a fantastic job with it. And uh, I'm sure that there are elements of it that could be improved upon in a, in a remake or a, a, a new adaptation, but I don't need to see it because the book is just that incredible. Right. And the movie is incredible as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think anyone's ever going to top, Kathy Bates' performance. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, and I was going to make a stupid joke that um, uh, I kind of see uh, in a weird, like, un um, unofficial trilogy in, um, this is so dumb, The Shining with Jack Nicholson, and then Misery with Kathy Bates, and then the conclusion of that trilogy is bringing those two together in About Schmidt. Um <laughs> So, God. yeah, just imagine about Schmidt is about Annie Wilkes and Jack Torrance. Oh, my um, God. And granted, I don't know anything about about Schmidt except for the, the hot tub scene. Um, right. So, yeah. Anyway, um, I think that's a good time, as good a time as any to close out this episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And once again, check out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. I am posting tons and tons of stuff over there at all of the levels. So once again, $1 gets you access to exclusive RSS feed for pre-show recordings. $2 gets you access to TV show reviews and reactions and commentaries. And then $5 gets you movie commentaries and immediate reaction movie reviews. And then $10 gets you all of that. Plus early access to uh to full episodes and unreleased content so um on that note um we're gonna close out the episode uh thank you guys so much for listening and uh, tiny any parting thoughts for the podcast great to be back all right yes great to have you back so super happy that we're back uh, back at it so uh yeah thank you guys so much for supporting us uh, long days and pleasant nights and may you have twice the number And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Yeah, I felt like what they... That was funny. So, the Falcon and Winter Soldier, that was funny because it's like, I don't know, maybe it's just a sign of the times, but like... They showed, I don't even know if it was 30 seconds, maybe, and maybe mm. a 30 second commercial, but, um, it, like at the yeah. end, it was like, go to the website or whatever for the full trailer. I'm like, what the fuck? I think that is, that has been kind of standard operating procedure for a while. Really? Has Especially been, uh... with the Super Bowl, since they can only have like, uh, like 30 seconds of ad time for like right. millions and millions of dollars. Right, right. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to towerjunkiespod.com slash archive. You can also like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash towerjunkiespod and follow us on Twitter at towerjunkiespod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast... You can make a PayPal donation at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate 
or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and OVAnthologyPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. Kitty!